Hey out there, live music fans. Welcome to episode number two of the Ugly American Werewolf in London's monthly sidecast, First Concert Memories, where we interview someone about the first time they saw a band that changed their lives. And this second show is no different. We have the man who literally wrote the book on Van Halen, and that is author Greg Renoff. He wrote Van Halen Rising. He's actually written a new book about the life of Ted Templeman, their producer, which you can order off Amazon, and you can also visit him on Twitter, at Greg Renoff, to get an autographed copy. So that's pretty exciting. Our first episode on KISS with Tom and Zeus from Shout It Out Loudcast was a ton of fun. So glad to have those guys back on. But you know, the thing was, me and Jackson and Tom and Zeus were all about the same age. So our first show was between Tom's first show on the Hot in the Shade tour and Zeus's first show on the Live Worldwide, the first reunion tour. We saw the Revenge Tour. But Greg's going to talk to us about the 1984 tour. And we were just a little young to get into that tour. We were 10 or maybe 11 at that point. But Van Halen was blowing up and they were all over MTV. And 1984 is what sucked us in and made us big Van Halen fans. So it's going to be a lot of fun to talk to Greg about that. And obviously it changed his life because he went on to write books about Van Halen. Before we get to Greg, we've got just a little bit of business. We are proud members of the Pantheon Network, a network of about 100 different music shows. There's really something in there for everyone's, not just rock and roll. So visit PantheonPodcast.com or follow on socials at Pantheon Pods. And make sure all you Van Halen fans go out and visit our sponsor, RareVinyl.com. Use the code UGLY and you can save 10% off your orders. So if you're looking for that rare Van Halen import, you're looking for a single from a foreign country, you're looking for a store point of purchase item that you can't just find everywhere, maybe a tour program, whatever. You can only use it once, so don't just buy one $5 UCD. Buy a bunch of stuff and save yourself a ton of money, a big fat 10% using the code UGLY at rarevinyl.com. Now back to Greg. This is going to be a really fun show. We've been looking forward to this for a while because obviously we never saw 1984 and Van Halen famously never put out a lot of live albums and there really isn't anything definitive from this era. So there's nothing we could watch like Live Without a Net so we knew exactly what the 5150 tour was all about. Or Live Right Here Right Now. We saw them on that tour and it's a great keepsake as a memento to remind you of the greatness of Van Halen if you saw them on that tour. But we're going to dive in now. This is First Concert Memories number two talking Van Halen with author Greg Reynolds. Van Halen, man. This is pretty exciting for us. I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, Wayne, I'm, I'm sorry I haven't read your Ted Templeman book yet, but that has got to be exciting for Van Halen fans out there. Yeah, it was a, uh, a really great experience for me to work with him on that book, and I think it was a, a valuable end product that gives people at least his perspective on what it was like to work with Van Halen, but also to like to work with the Doobie Brothers, Little Feet, and I mean, so many huge artists. Uh, you know, Honeymoon Suite would be one that comes to mind from the 80s. Yeah. It kind of goes under people's radar. He worked with Van Morrison, Carly Simon, so all, all that stuff. Plus, he was a 
record executive for Warner Brothers for many years. So it's, it was great. It's awesome. Well, I'll, I'll be picking up. I've just moved back to the States and we've got a lot of stuff going on. So I'm a little behind on my reading, but I will get there. Okay. Before Christmas, I promise. No worries. <laughs> and we're just excited to have you on because, you know, this is kind of a new sidecast for us, something we do every month where we get someone who, for whom seeing a band live for the first time was life changing, life affirming. Mm-hmm. And obviously, since you are uh, such a big fan that you wrote a book, now you could say mm-hmm. a couple of books. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a big deal. And this tour, Greg. Mm-hmm. It has to go down as the greatest Van Halen tour. And I know some people who would say they saw on the Fair Warning tour right. and it blew them out. I get it. But as far as being at the apex of pop culture, right. having Dave the frontman there, and the mm-hmm. set list is to die for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot uh, to say. A lot to say about that. I agree. So so we'll get into it. We've got the 20 questions about that. I hope I sent that to you. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Uh, and the first five are basically like the who, what, where, why, when that you do sure. on a sixth grade civics, you know, project. Sure. Like but why don't you hit us with those first five date, venue, city, location, band, and tour? So, uh, yeah, my Van Halen 1984 tour story is that I saw them at the Brendan Byrne Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey, which is still there, but it's not called the Brendan Byrne Arena anymore. I don't know what it's called. That was April 2nd, 1984. They played the 30th and the 31st in Madison Square Garden, and they played the 2nd and the 3rd in New Jersey. And so that was a big, big weekend for Van Halen fans. Like That was the Saturday, if I'm remembering right. Uh, Friday, Saturday was at Madison Square Garden, and then Monday, and then uh, Monday, Tuesday was in New Jersey, and they had Sunday off, my April Fool's Day off. And so, uh, yeah, the story goes, I had... Uh, fall in love with the band and was very interested in going to see them and the show sold out as you guys probably would expect back in the day you know when tickets went on sale if you weren't there there really wasn't like easy resale especially for teenagers i mean there were there actually were ticket brokers in new jersey where if you had money you could like call the number and have a credit card number and they send you a ticket but you know it wasn't like okay. there where you can kind of go go and like search tickets so it was sold out to me at 14 years old it was sold out but there was actually a kid in my homeroom actually I'll, I'll spare all the deals, but he sold me a ticket. He scalped me a ticket. Okay. And I, I got the ticket. And my mom was not thrilled about the amount of money I spent on the ticket scalping it. <laughs> I, you know, this is this is back in the day of minimum wage where what three was like three seventy five or something like that, four twenty five an hour you made for minimum wage in right. nineteen eighty four. And so but I had the ticket and to her credit, she agreed to take me because I only had one ticket. I was no one to go with. I actually ended up sitting with this guy's brothers, older brothers and friends, and it was sort of kind of you know, they didn't know me and I was with some kids sitting in the seat, so it didn't matter. But yeah, gotcha. I just were kind of, you know, I was, I was kind of at her mercy with that and I didn't drive and have a license. I didn't really know anyone else who was, who was going to the show and saw them, saw them then. That was my uh, entry into Van Halen Live. So that was the 1984 tour, April 1984. And that was right after Jump had gone number one. Jane Jump had gone number one about maybe six weeks earlier. So that was really the, the excitement around MTV for Van Halen was really, I think, at the peak then. It was going to continue all summer, but certainly that was a huge moment. All right, so right off the bat, coolest mom ever for being mad, but yet still <laughs> taking the care. You know, it's funny. There should be a podcast about that, about parents who, like, took kids to rock because <laughs> there are a lot of them. Uh, but, she, yeah, she, you know, the good news thing, I don't remember when exactly I got the ticket, but it was probably, I'm guessing, February or something like that. So she had some time to kind of cool down about it. I'm sure the <laughs> yeah. first day she was not. He wasn't he wasn't thrilled by it because it was an expensive I scalped for quite a you, bit of money. Where were you living at the time? Uh North North Jersey. So I lived okay. about 
35, 40 minutes from the arena. So it wasn't that big of a haul. But yeah, that was, you know, that was the the thing. All those shows, every show in 1984 were sold out. And we we're talking about the, the kind of being the pinnacle for Van Halen. Certainly that was the most um, successful tour for them, I believe. I mean, I think for Diver Down, they did, they, they did really well. They did very well on that tour. But I think, I don't think they sold out every day. And I, you know, you go back and look at how many days they played versus the attendance. But certainly this was a step up for them. You know, I, you know, no surprise with the number one song and the, yeah. the number two album and everything. And they just sort of were really uh, at their uh, their apex in terms of the Roth era, no doubt. So you're 14. Right. Uh, when did you get into them? I mean, was, was MTV like, big for it? Yeah, I mean, so I always tell people, I know I heard Pretty Woman on the radio, but it was never something that I was like, you know, I liked the song, but I was never really like, oh, I got to find out about this Van, Han- Van Halen. I liked a lot of songs on the radio at that time. But yeah, for me, it was, you know, it was MTV. It was uh, sitting there listening to Martha Quinn or whoever talk about the bands and then watching the videos. And I saw Jump. And what I actually did was I went out and I bought, initially I bought 45. I, I you know, I don't remember why I bought the 45. I, I, I don't know if I didn't have enough money. That's probably what it was. Or if I did, I was sort of like, well, if maybe I just saw it and I bought it, right? I don't, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. But I saw Jump and I was like, I want to hear Jump. So I bought the 45. And so it had, nice. it was Jump on one side and the other side was House of Pain. And, uh, you know, that's actually what really made me a, a huge fan of Van Halen's guitar playing more than anything else. Because that one was just so dirty and nasty and just all the soloing that ed did it was really you know that one obviously is much more to the spirit of what i think van halen was as a sort of like a center point in terms of hard rock heavy mm-hmm. slash heavy metal yeah you know there was all the pop stuff too that they did and they were all you know they were very diverse but that was pretty you want to understand like what eddie van halen was for guitar or house of pain you know just an album track but it really was a great eddie van halen guitar performance and so i was like whoa this is amazing and then kind of was all in on getting the album and everything and from there well, it bounced a lot of the keyboard stuff that they had yeah. fought Ed yeah. on for years, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Ed mm-hmm. had been sneaking it in here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but finally, you know, and the rumor has it that he showed him jump in like 1982, maybe during the Diver Down mm-hmm. sessions. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, no, that's intense. Like, screw that. That's not heavy metal. That's not what I'm here for, you know. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. But then a year later, they're like, okay, well, maybe there's a little something to that and i that might bring a nice side question up at some point but i'll get to it later as far as performance goes mm-hmm. but yeah he, finally those keyboards are, are working and it kind of drive 1984 to be more popular than really anything else they've ever done yeah i think that's the the, the truth about the 84 album was that the keyboards broadened their audience i think uh, yeah all i know from my conversations working with the book with ted that Ted was afraid that on some level that he thought that Jump might alienate fans and uh, Van Halen fans and probably did alienate some Van Halen fans. I mean, there's some segment of fans who sort of were like, oh, you know, heart, like guys who were, who were sort of like turned off by how poppy it was. But for the, you know, for the bigger picture, obviously, it vastly, vastly, vastly expanded their their appeal to uh, kids who never would have heard it. I mean, again, if, if Jump hadn't been on MTV, I'm not sure that I would have, you know, maybe later I would have heard Panama or something that I'd loved it too because I loved it. But that was certainly, you know, that moment of, of early January, February, March, nineteen eighty four. Van Halen was all jump was constantly on MTV, constantly. Um, right. You know, whatever they called it, heavy rotation. It was on like seemingly like every hour on the hour it was on. So yeah, it basically blew their audience up. And I've been watching a little bit of that. I'm sure you've seen the the five part. I think it's a five part or six part special that a fan has put together on mm-hmm. YouTube about mm-hmm. Van Halen. I was watching the nineteen eighty four one here, and it's like so. The cracks were really in the foundation. Dave was starting mm-hmm. to think he's a little too big to be in Van Halen. Mm-hmm. And so when they did the jump video, they basically filmed the other guys and Dave separately throughout the day. And then at the end of the day, that's when they kind of brought them all together. Mm-hmm. It's like they're just trying to keep the peace all day. But like a lot of the stuff you see, like 
Dave and his low rider riding on the highway in Panama and stuff. Mm -hmm. He wanted all that in junk, which I didn't realize at the time. You probably know all this stuff, but I'm trying to clue our listeners into like what's going on in the Van Halen camp at this time. Yeah, they're blown up, but it's not all hunky dork. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think all that's accurate. I think the thing is that going back to the Pretty Woman video, the the band became focused, the entire band really, I mean, especially Alex and Dave, from what I understand, became very focused on doing this Pretty Woman video and it ended up being a bigger production than they initially had planned. And this the the fun backstory there is that they shot the film and then they had the sort of the narrative all scripted out for all the different parts, you know, that they were going to have this sort of like mini movie thing they're going to do for five minutes. And they realized, right, yeah. oh, the song is too short. So we need to do Intruder. So they did, they added the music, you know, so that way, in other words, the video took precedence over the music. They were, instead of like writing, making music and then going to make a video, they said, oh shit, we need more music. And so they went after the studio. But, you know, this was an era when it wasn't just about MTV videos. It was about people who were on MTV wanting to be movie stars as well. And you can sort of see that beginning with Roth. Um, yeah. you know, you know, I, I don't think he had any inkling in, in late 1983 that he wanted to make a movie, but let's not miss the fact that there were people, everyone from Sting to Tina Turner to Prince, all these individuals were e either starring in movies or being, being acting in movies. And so there was this definite focus on like the camera can make you bigger, big, a bigger star. And obviously going from 1981, 1982 video quality with you know, mostly concert rock bands did a lot of concert footage, or if they did sort of like, you know, That's they right. did like, it was very hokey. A lot of the videos that you know, were early MTV videos were very hokey. Certainly the production values had, had gotten better. And, you know, Ross saw that. And uh, yeah, I think it, it, certainly the brothers were unenthusiastic. I'm not mm -hmm. sure. I haven't seen the, I haven't seen the uh, 1984 episode. Um, I suspect that Alan did a great job putting it together. Is going to talk about the, the Lost Weekend movie, which was, proposed by MTV. Basically, there was an MTV executive I, I, and then who would sort of gotten together with somebody at Warner uh, Movies, I think, if I remember okay. the story correctly. It was like Warner Brothers Warner Brothers Film Studios was like, let's do like a Hard, Day, hard Day's Night style movie with Van Halen where it's just like rock stars acting, you know, kind of goofy and, and doing this thing and partying. And they were going to, they were basically going to make this movie around Van Halen for calling it The Lost Weekend. And, and from what I understand, I get either all the guys opted out, but you can be sure you know, that the, the brothers were, were definitely unenthusiastic about that. If Roth had any, like, if that moved the needle at all for Roth, I'm not sure. But, like, you know, there was sort of this push to be like, oh, you know, you guys should, you guys should be in a movie, right? Um, you yeah. guys should be in a movie, too. And so the videos were a symptom of a larger problem, which is we could see when Roth finally came to them in late, late 84, early 85, and started to talk about, I want to make a movie. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, Mike, too, uh, no doubt, was not, they just were not into it. They just weren't, they didn't want to do that. They wanted to make, albums so yeah the video stuff is i didn't mean to go on this giant tangent but the video stuff is very interesting about the panama footage the basically all the stuff that they shot for the the original jump video which is the stuff you see in the panama video that got That's trapped right. and they did they did the jump video yeah now see i thought you were gonna i thought you were talking about that that contest that they had the lost weekend with van Halen. right well but the success exactly the success of that made somebody and again i might be boggling uh, bungling up the facts a little bit but it was i believe it was someone at warner brothers motion pictures the warner brothers movie studios kind of said oh well you know we have van halen and warner brothers let's take this idea from mtv and make a movie and again it wasn't okay. going to be like a contest it was just going to be like i don't even know what the script would have been like it was just you can imagine it probably was not going to be very sophisticated it was like teenagers party with van halen or something like that and it's just like right. lots of opportunities 
you know, you put because, the music, you put the music in the put the music, you know, like think about things like, you know, Street of Fire and these other like slide, you know, movies that are being made around like they're basically like right, they're long style. form music video exactly. basically. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's right. like a Miami Vice episode. Yeah. 100%, right. So probably, yeah. you know, probably wouldn't have been as artistic as that, but you get the idea of like sort of like we can put, yo, we'll do a soundtrack. We'll put five or six Van Halen songs on the soundtrack and we'll do, you know, they the and again, I'm not sure at that point that Roth killed that idea, the band killed that idea, the management killed the idea. But eventually, of course, Roth come around to the idea of like, or or has has been locked on that idea for longer. Like, I just want to do a Van Halen movie that we're gonna we're gonna make. We're not gonna let someone else bring us a script. We're gonna create a script for it. So, but there was yeah, there was definitely this this sort of thing of making the band bigger through bigger screens. And Ed and Al and Mike were not into it. And that was gonna not be a, a major problem, right? There was a major. Look, I mean, Roth was being on magazine covers with Madonna. They were, they wasn't, you know, they'd have Ed and Dave sometimes, but a lot of times they'd be like, David Lee Roth, Madonna, Boy George. I mean, there definitely was this sort of like pop star status that Dave got elevated to beyond the others. And I'm not saying the other guys weren't, obviously they were all being like celebrated all across different magazines and interviews and all that stuff. But there were obviously as the singer, right? You sort of become this sort of focal point and there was an ability for Roth to sort of, you know, kind of, Look, the brothers really felt that. I think they felt that that the Roth was using them at some point, to some extent, as a platform to elevate himself, and that certainly mm -hmm. was what, what happened when the EP came out. But um, he had the looks for it, right? He had the looks and the charisma. Well, I mean, sure. I mean, sure. I mean, look, it happens in a lot, a lot of bands. I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, I, I I dare say in a rock podcast, we'll have to you guys will have to take this with a you know in the right spirit. I just watched the Wham documentary, which I, I really that recommend. Yeah. It was great. It was and you know, yeah. and it was like the same, you know, what ended up happening with that band is of course that George Michael becomes sort of the bigger star. He's the songwriter and he's, you know, they both are they're both are are, are uh, wham. But that, you know, with that situation is interesting. They just sort of decided to go their separate ways and and seemingly um Andrew understood that George was the star and that George was going to go on to bigger and better things and was sort of like I've I've done my time and I'm going to sort of step back. Yeah. Um, wasn't the same thing with Van Halen as a band, but you know, you can see that how the singer, the guy who's like singing the song suddenly becomes like, you know, there's opportunity to sort of to milk the celebrity in a way that, you know, the guitar player who's quieter, you know, he, right. you know, he had his chances, but it was, you know, there was, if you were going to see Van Halen on a magazine cover in 1984, it was much more likely if there was going to be one person and it was not a guitar magazine, it was much more likely it was just going to be Dave, obviously. It's going to be Dave. Yeah, right. yeah. And it's, you know, like, I remember watching MTV back in the day that, and mm -hmm. we're just a few years younger than you are. So we kind of missed out. Like, we were talking about, like, we could have seen the show if only we had, like, a big brother <laughs> or an older cousin, right? Right. Because right. we were, like, cool 10 mom. or 11. Cool mom, yeah, right. Cool exactly. mom, we get, like, six. Here you go. Here's the yeah, money, you know. You know, you were talking about you were talking about the the cracks in the armor there. You can really, I think you can really see that in the Hot for Teacher video where they do the dance number. You know, where they have all the sparkly suits on, and you right. can tell the rest of the band right. is really not like they're kind of just they're not comfortable. Right. They don't want right. to be there. But Dave what? is, hey, look at right. me. Hey, and that <laughs> and, and so you know the, the irony there is, of course, that's what made it that get so fat that mm -hmm. piece that video so funny because those guys were so awkward and seemed uncomfortable doing it. Dave would. Of course, that was sort of playing to the stereotype is like Dave's the, the song and dance guy and the other guys, are, you know, are sort of like this isn't their their forte. But um, <laughs> without a doubt, I mean, without a doubt, that's just all that was all part and parcel of Roth's vision. You can imagine. Look, I always tell people, if you want to imagine what the crazy from the heat movie would have been like. Imagine like, you know, a little bit of Hopper Teacher and a lot of the, the Yankee Rose video and the, all that, you know, going crazy. <laughs> that's what it would have been like. Yeah. It would have been like a lot of like a lot. And again, imagine 
Eddie and Alex in the Going Crazy video, right? Or the Yankee Rose video, like, yeah. like kind of a, not like not even in character, but just like like in that sort of milieu, which is so like exaggerated comedy. They would have, you know, they would have been not into it. You know, that's but you know, most people don't know that the the, the costumes. The costumes from the Yankee Rose video, the costumes from the Gone Crazy video, the fat suits, the whole thing, that was all for the movie. The movie had been killed at that point or was basically ah. not, not going to be made, right? They were having trouble getting funny. So, yeah, I guess. No, I gained 80 pounds. Love that video. Says, so, it would have been, you know, the, <laughs> the Pete Picasso character, fat suit, the sort of the whole, all the characters, all the characters who were sort of in that, that were all meant to be in the movie in the movie to one extent or another, they'd all been cast for the movie. And so that sort of gives you a sense of that's, you know, that's a taste of, you know, maybe it would have been less slapstick than that, but it was, that gives you a taste of what Ross vision for and Aunt Pete Angelus, of course, very important was a vision for that. So, you know, yeah. That's right. Yeah. When so, like going back to MTV, like being a scrawny, tall, pasty, pale kid with dark hair, I see David Lee Roth. I'm like, now that's a rock star and I'll never be that. But if you see Rick Ocasek, I'm like, Hey, I can look like Rick Ocasek, maybe right. I could make something like myself. But like David with this lion's mane and the ripped abs and doing the splits off the drum riser, I'm like that'll well, never be me. That's something right. special. <laughs> right. And I think in fair, you know, when I was saying fairness to Dave, he saw this as his moment. Um, he was, you know, pop culture savvy enough to know that everybody has their moment. You can't just sort of go, I'll wait for five years because your moment passes. And this was, you know, he had, he had seen his colleagues. Again, Madonna made movies, right? Madonna was in, who's and that she's girl? horrible. Oh, of yeah, course, uh, of course, yeah. yeah. Right, he made a who's number that girl? of movies. Yeah, um, John Cougar, John a lot of people don't know John Cougar was trying to make a movie. It didn't end up getting made until many years later, but he was trying, he had a script. I mean, it was like, you read Rolling Stone at the time, it was like, so-and-so's making a movie. You know, they wanted to make, uh, another fun, fun fact is that, there was a script for Tina Turner that was sort of like a like a like a sudden impact. Like she was going to be like the, the revenge. She was gonna be like you know. You, you know. So they were like, yeah, they were like, like she was going to be like the you know, like dirty hair, uh, dirty hair. Kind of like again, like yeah, like you know, they were like people were putting these scripts in front of them, and of course, you know, like she she passed out that for good reason, I think. But she was in the um, the Mad Max movie, and you know, this is just this is just Roth saw this as his like. I went to MTV Radio Williams made movies, right? You know, now they usually came on very, very late at night on cable, but still. <laughs> yeah, she uh, should have. She should have directed the the crazy from the heat movie. That would have been something. That would have been something. <laughs> you know, like yeah. TVs exploding and school buses going through like walls of fire. Whatever she would do. I was going to say, going going back to the, we are totally jealous, but going back to the set list, they start off with Unchained. Mm -hmm. And I've seen I've seen tribute bands do this, and I'm guessing this is what happened. I hope this is what happened. They go into the beginning, you know, the main riff, but when the bass hits, does Roth do the big split off the drum riser? Yeah. What's interesting is that there's a bootleg that was, you know, somebody, I well, somebody, I, there, there was a, a gentleman, a kid in Canada who was able to sneak a video camera into the Montreal Forum and actually recorded quite a few shows from there. I've heard numerous stories about how he kind of pulled it off as like, like literally his mom worked there and used to let him in like i don't know she like worked one of the, the, the gates and used to let him in with the studio camera but he shot this and so you can see that's only if i get my math right that's only 17 days after i saw van halen and it's it it was i actually saw that uh, had a copy of that videotape in late 1994 and saw it in my basement so i was like oh my god like you know third generation video copy i bought nice. from somebody but um yeah very yeah came off the drum riser in the first song and it's you know kind of locks 
kind of my memories have sort of been like mixed in with that that video but um the script the show was very scripted as you can imagine so like they would do this rock would come off the riser and then they did the uh he would you know had this glitter the same glitter jacket he would wear like long jacket he would wear in uh the panama video he took that off and mm -hmm. yeah i mean it was it was so you know for me the thing was it was so overwhelmingly just it was just an assault on the senses and that's really yeah. what made those concerts especially you know all the concerts of that era were so i don't know it just doesn't you know i think part of it is you can only be 14 once and sort of you know you've seen today like you know there are plenty of concert openings that are cool i go to an arena show i'm like wow that's really cool and you know there's obviously flame effects and lasers and all this stuff sure. it's like wow it's great but you know to have that be the first time you ever saw as a teenager or as a, a person ever to see that type of thing it was so loud the spotlights were going all over the place before they came on and it sort of hits the spotlights hit Roth and he comes off the riser and it was just such a such a um high energy assault yeah. on the from on the stage. I mean it was just those guys were just they were so well locked in with each other and how to perform and even if they weren't getting along, nobody could tell that. I mean, you know, you couldn't tell that they were they looked like this sort of like gang up there on stage having the best time in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, they went through the first few songs very, very quickly. I remember that. And then they stopped. And this is again, this is very scripted. You can see this on the, the bootleg um, that Roth and starts talking to the crowd. You know, it's sort of like they take a break after running with the devil. And right. Roth just stood Roth just stood there for like two minutes in New Jersey and just and I actually people just cheered. You know, they just cheered. And no, <laughs> he didn't say anything. Like you can hear it on the on the feed on the video tape. It's the same thing. Just, you know, Montreal stands there and cheers and he's like, you know, it's good to be back in New Jersey. And then he starts cursing a whole bunch, which again, you know, when you're 14, like, you know, I've been to plenty of like I don't know broadway shows and like assemblies and whatever else it was and i'd been to a couple of concerts before but like you know he's like it was just like so like you're like you can do that i mean i don't know like 14 i'm like you can do that and not get arrested you know and he was like why don't i remember he said he said something like why don't we just forget the rest of the show and go across the street and get drunk and like you know and like people just with the crowd just scream and scream and so i mean look i have no idea what that feels like as a human being to be up on the stage like that and have that many people doing that night after night for you but you can imagine like for anybody who had that Look, plenty of bands go out on stage and they don't have that. They, you know, they do they do well in front of crowds. I mean, I saw Billy Squire. No, no offense to Billy Squire, but it wasn't as ravenous of a response. I saw Billy mm -hmm. Squire later that year. I mean, people liked him and it was a good show. I liked it, but like I wasn't gonna stand on my feet for 10 minutes and scream for Billy Squire, right? right. It was just, you know, you were like clapping, people like it was a good show. Believe me, good show, but it was just that level of like mania and charisma that was coming off that stage. And so yeah, and then they, you know, they they uh, continued on. And the thing I remember too is that, you know, you speak about keyboards. There were a lot of keyboards. Yeah, you know, did they play them or did they pipe yeah. them in? No, they played them. I mean, there was no piping and keyboards back then, so they okay. played. Um, they played all weight. They played that. They also played. Ross does did this sword tai chi sword solo for lack of a better term. He sort of spun the sword around and did these different these moves. And at that point, Eddie played an instrumental keyboard part, um, which. You know, the way I describe it, if you listen to um, Why Can't This Be Love, there's that very, very short key keyboard intro with that, like, pulsing bass, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So he did, he did that and kind of stole it over that with the keyboard and Roth did his thing. So they did, not only did they they do a wait, so, you know, that really wasn't a keyboard solo, so to speak, because Roth was in the spotlight, which maybe that was annoying to Ed, too. Like, he's, you know, mm -hmm. there, he was, but he was. He was, like, doing this whole, like, instrumental piece on keyboards. But they did, you know, they, they along the way they did Jamie's Crying, they did yeah. uh, How's the Pain, they did um, Running with the Devil. The they set did. list is badass, though. Yeah, I mean, it's good. I mean, it's good. You know, it, interestingly enough, like looking back on it, there were a number of like, there was this sort of like rock talk for five minutes at the beginning, five to seven minutes. He stood there and just sort of like let people like cheer and he said a few things. You know, then he did the sword thing. And then they did in the middle of, in the middle of Unchained, excuse me, excuse me, of, of uh, Everybody Wants Some. 
And this was about three quarters of the way through the set. Alex stayed behind the drum kit and just sort of like played a couple of, would play fills occasionally. But Ross just talked. Like Ross was just up there like talking. Just riffing? Yeah, just like, you know, it was, it was, just, it was generally like, he had like a, imagine you had like a, a framework for a script. And if you listen to any of the, the bootlegs, you listen to like the other, you know, stuff on YouTube, you can hear it. And it was like, you know, we got into town, there were all these girls and sort of, but it was, just very, <laughs> my point is, my point is, like, in 1979, they were out for blood in terms of, like, they were trying to break the band. They didn't need it. There weren't. There was nothing to break anymore. They were just, like, living off the, right. the fame at this point. I don't mean that just, like, to rip those guys, but I just mean, like, they knew, like, they it made- didn't matter how many songs they played, and people were going to be entertained by that. So, like, you know, to have Roth up there for that l- length of time, just sort of just telling jokes. I mean, it was, like, stand-up almost. I mean, it really was. It was, like, he was, like, telling jokes and, like, sort of cracking one-liners and, like, saying things to girls, you know, he did all these sort of like scripted lines, like, you know, don't stick your tongue out of me unless you intend to use it or like, you know, <laughs> these types of things. They were like, you know, it was like this sort of like stand up almost, you know? So my point is they did it. It was the great set. It was great, but there was probably room. If they were going to be up there, like we're going to be up there for like, I don't know, like an hour and 15 minutes or something like that. Or like, you know, or an hour and 25 minutes, let's say there were probably opportunities to do two more songs. They could have done that. They, you know, at least two more songs they could have, they could have done if they sort of cut down on all that stuff. But, you know, Look, let's face it. Roth got to, to talk to talk on stage for 15 minutes, and then he got to leave the stage, and he got to play, you know, Eruption for 15 minutes, which was great. I mean, obviously, that was like a life changing thing to see that. You know, more than the Roth, the Roth stuff was entertaining, but at the time, obviously, I was like, oh wow, this is, you know, I I didn't know. I was like, oh, this is great, you know. But the Eddie Van Halen guitar solo was so like mind boggling, uh, which is incredible. Hi, this is Mick Wall, and you are listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. 
Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Well, so and, was uh, 316 a, a part of it at that point? Because it was on the next tour, 5150. No, he, he didn't do that. I mean, he did, okay. you know, he did like a little bit. That again was, there was a pretty much of a framework to that. But as I recall, he did, he had already done Cathedral. They did Cathedral. Really, so right. he, did, he did like a little bit of Spanish Flies, I remember. He did a little bit of the Mean Street introduction and then okay. just you know, bits and pieces of Eruption kind of broken out. And then he did the Yalta did, which was kind of cool, which was the tabletop guitar where he propped. I remember this very distinctly. He propped the guitar up kind of on his at his waist where it, instead of it being vertical, it became horizontal. And then he played on the neck with it. And that was just, you know, again, that was just, no one had ever seen anything like that before. That was just kind of a complete game changer. And sort of, it sounded wild to it, you know, in the arena. That was the uh, pushing towards the end of the set. And they did, um, you know, they, they, do, they did uh, Panama, You Really Got Me, and then Ain't Talking About Love. They did not do um, Happy Trails when I saw them, but they did do that about, half the night 784 tour but they okay. did, you know look it was look it was the best concert i ever saw in my life you know i'm like mm-hmm. oh, now i'm sitting here like you know like years later like armchair quarterbacking on this stuff and but you know obviously when i walked out of there it was like you know i was in absolute shock and mind I, was blown and just yeah, I mean, and it's, yeah. and it's Mom, like, you won't believe this right. you know, stop screaming like, at me gregory we're taking <laughs> you home i was i'm sure you know i didn't have earplugs i'm sure my ears were ringing like crazy kind of straight i, I had pretty good seats it was like you can imagine like the, um, you know, there's sort of, it was a hockey arena. And so the yeah. stage is, a, a, you know, basically at one, one end of the arena and that, that would block off like, you know, maybe like 15% of the arena then would be behind the stage. But I was basically straight back, which would have been like behind the goal on the other, on the other end of the other hockey. Okay. Goal. Like, so straight like, away, but maybe 50 good, yards away. Or good good like seats, right? So I mean, yeah, yeah. probably 75 yards away. You're good yeah. seats. But um, yeah, I'm sure <laughs> it was loud. Yeah. I mean, look, it was, it was something that stuck with me. I went to see Van Halen numerous times in the years that follow. I didn't see them every tour, you know, where I was at school or something, and I was not able to um, to go in terms of where I was living at the time. But, you know, when I had the opportunity through high school to go see Van Halen, I always went to see them. And, yeah, maybe a Van Halen fan for life. And I was, you know, I was, I was devastated when they, and I always tell people, like, I never believed, like, Ross was going to quit Van Halen. There were... You guys know, like, the, you know, back then it was all about magazines and MTV. Like, MTV would, get, would obviously give you more recent news, like, like would more, like, less old news. Like, would oh, be like, lag. yeah, let's right. They're a little like, over like, like three days or four days or five days, you get news from MTV, maybe, maybe less. But, uh, you know, Rolling Stone was like, you know, sometimes a month. That's right. And, uh, you know, the thing that's interesting is that, uh, I didn't really believe they were breaking up or, you know, because just react. Oh, well, that's what do they know? What do the journalists know? Like, you know, Ross, because Ross would always say, we're not going to break up. That's the last thing you hear Ross saying, like, we're not breaking up if you did interviews and the whole summer goes by. And then I see farm aid on TV. And that was another, like, you know, kind of like a big MTV moment or whatever that was, I guess that was national network, but it was all over MTV too. the sort of the Eddie and Sammy do rock and roll. And that was sort mm. of the, that was the end of my childhood Uh-oh. right there. <laughs> yeah, That was, that ended my childhood right there. That was like, that, <laughs> like you know, like it's when the Santa Claus doesn't exist. Easter Bunny doesn't exist. And Van Halen breaks up. That was the last one that destroyed all my innocence. So it, yeah. how, how did, how did Raw sound vocally? I mean, I know you said he put on the, he had the spoken word stuff, but how did he right. sound when he actually sang? I mean, he sounded fine. I mean, nobody, nobody, I didn't even think about that. I would dare say that nobody thought about that. Like, you know, right. like I think, I think Ross's brilliance was he realized that the performance 
needed to be a physical performance. Yes, he yeah, he he screamed, he sang, he sang the words or whatever, he did his thing. Listened to it, right? You could say, well, it's pitchy. It's just like it's all like that's all it was irrelevant. Nobody I mean again, I didn't do like a survey, but I dare say if you walk people out of the arena, everyone would have said David Lee Roth the man. I loved the mm -hmm. concert. It was incredible. No one was gonna be like, well, you know, he sort of he sort of bungled the words up on this and you know he really seemed like he was like, you know, he was, you know, missing his cues on everybody No one cared, in. right? Nobody, <laughs> nobody cared. Look, later on he certainly, you know, he's had his his challenges with his vocals and there's been he's saying better at times than other times. But I think the important thing was the guy, whether chemically induced or just fitness or whatever you want to say, he moved the entire show like okay. he moved the entire show i mean like yeah. you know running from they all did they all did eddie and you know particularly eddie and dave ran they must have run like five miles on that stage the stage was gigantic and they were just running and jumping and you know you kind of see where eddie, eddie had to have a, a the hip you know hip replacement because he was doing these slides on the stage and all these jumps yeah. and no wonder he'd like you know physical problems in his body started to break down I've, I've heard roth has had numerous back surgeries and stuff like that i mean it's not it's not surprising those guys worked i mean they really worked and that was again you know they're they're playing for the person up on the upper level right who's who's not going to be able to like see their facial expressions necessarily there was no video screens you're not gonna see your facial expressions and you're not worried right. about exactly the, the song but like seeing dave go off the drum riser or like jumping off the uh off the side of the side of the stage or all all that stuff that was what translated into the good the good show so i mean yeah i think i think he sounded fine i mean i never even on, and i saw them on i saw ralph and eat and smile i never once thought like oh the vocals aren't good um mm -hmm. you know look and you, you know you you obviously you go to see like dio or something in the 80s you're like Oh, Ronnie's singing is incredible. That guy like, you're sing, like, yeah. Right. You're like, right, whatever. Like, you're locked in on the singing, right? That was the thing. Was You're not worried about whether, you know, Ronnie Dio could do a split off the drum rise. You're worried about how he sang. But that <laughs> But you make a good point there, though, Greg. I mean, like today, with all the video screens and the effects and all the stuff that they can do on a show, you know, the guys don't really have to do that much. They don't have to run around. They have to be where a camera can see them so everyone can see them on the screen. But back then, for entertainment purposes, you got to have a front man like David Lee Roth who can do all that stuff and who will go out and do it every night. Right? Yeah, or or has a stage presence that's worthy, like again, like a Brian Johnson or someone who has a stage presence that can kind of keep people like interested. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing. It's like all of that sort of is all now like revisionist history about whatever and again i'm I'm not look i'm not going to sit here and say if you listen back you're like whoa that was an unbelievable vocal performance by dave on that you know he just you know for the most part he just was not focused on that right he you know yeah. again you listen he's an entertainer you know, he's not a it singer was, it was just they were right and it was yeah. just it was anybody who saw those shows understands that the physicality the movement the hitting the different spots on the stage where they did the different things were climbing up the, the steps to the top and being behind the drum riser so he could do the moonwalk all that stuff was much more the visuals and that that level of the performance and the sort of mm. the, the charismatic, charismatic frontman stuff was much more important to sort of making the show memorable than anything Roth would have sang. I mean, you know, but to be honest with you, I mean, it was, you know, it was so, it was so loud too. I mean, I remember it being, I, I remember very vividly being, it was like all guitar and drums. You couldn't really hear any bass. If there was, it was just kind of like the kick drums kind of overwhelmed the bass. So like whatever Michael Anthony was doing on bass, I mean you couldn't hear it. Um, you know maybe he had his Jack Daniels bass. He did have he did have a Jack Daniels bass. I'm I'm again I'm, it's hard for me to remember. I don't remember it vividly in my mind, but I'm almost positive he he ha he had it. But yeah, he said you his voice. You could hear obviously hear his voice. I mean that was the thing. There was you knew that somebody was like really like carrying the background vocals, and I yeah. really found out mm -hmm. that was Mike. But I, I, the, the the sound mix was all Ed. It was you know you could hear the vocals obviously, <laughs> but like the background vocals. But there was almost no there was no bass. I mean, yeah, again, maybe if you, you stood on the other side, side, like the arena, or like if you were like maybe if you were right in front of Mike Stack, like I'm on right. like the first five rows, maybe you could hear the bass better. But where it was with the PA, 
you know, it was just so, you know, a matter of like, it's funny, any sort of like subtle things that were going on in terms of with the guitar, you could hear, especially when you get eruption, like he would turn the guitar down or turn it off and you could hear like, you know, his hands were so strong. You could hear these very subtle things he would do on the guitar, but it's sort of like it was all like rough and those guys, it was just like, it wasn't distorted or to the point where you couldn't like, it wasn't like, oh, this sounds terrible. It was just sort of like, it was, it was just a mix that was meant to be like in your face to be like loud. It was like, you know, I, I don't know if it was the loudest show I ever saw, but it was, certainly was as loud as any other show I ever saw at the time. Hey, this is Scott Holiday from the Rival Sons. You're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London. All right, well, you've answered a lot of these questions already, but let's let's work through a few of them here. The venue, that's where the Devils play, right? Um, yeah. You went by yourself, but you with, like, your buddy who sold you the tickets, his right. older brothers and their friends, mm-hmm. right? It was your idea. It wasn't like you went around with a crowd. You were like, yes, I have to go see Van Halen. Your mom took you there, question number nine, mm-hmm. to get there. Very nice mm-hmm. of her. I guess you probably didn't have much of a pre-grading ritual at 14 with your mom taking no. you and, and picking you up, right? <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> yeah. No, there was no tailgating game later in life. That was just sort of like, yeah, we drove up. She drove up in this, like, legitimately, and so we had a station wagon, and we just drove up, Perfect. and door opened. She said, I'll pick you up right here. Like, well, I don't remember, what, like, whatever, like, there was, like, maybe it was a flagpole or something. I don't remember. I said, she's like, I'm going to pick you up. I think it was probably a flagpole or something. She's like, I'll pick you up at the flagpole when it's over. Nice. And that was it. You know, don't do any whatever she said. Don't do anything stupid or like whatever. I don't remember what she said, but like something mom liked. That no, was, it's like you know, a, a, almost famous with Cameron Crowe's mom says, sure. and don't do trunks. That's yeah. I bought a shirt. I did buy a shirt too. I don't. Yeah, I must have like I bought a shirt, and I don't remember. I think they were like twenty dollars the shirt, and uh, I don't Ooh, have it anymore. Yeah. But I think it was. But yeah, right. Um, again, it was one of those shirts that did not did not last. I, I don't remember. I mean, it's funny because you know typically I would have like. I think I would have saved, like I saved so much manual stuff. I'm shocked they don't still didn't still save it. I, maybe my, but I suspect it was like became unwearable. Like either it right. like, was like too tight from shrinking or it ripped or something. And then it just sort of like out of this. But I do remember the merch, you know, whatever the, you know, again, I don't think you could use a credit card back then either, by the way. I think right. it was like all yeah. cash. And it was yeah. like the merch, the merch line was, you know, it's not like, it wasn't like Taylor Swift today, but it was like, there was a lot of people at those merch stops. I remember they, you know, they had like, Shirts and posters, whatever. They had sort of like everything you get from the Van Halen fan club at the time, which was sort of like buttons and shirts and yeah. whatever else, bandanas and painter's hats that said Van Halen or whatever. But um, but yeah, then I went to my seat and yeah, and then walked out afterwards. And was, um, it, was it the shirt with the eagle on the front? That was the shirt I had, yeah. right? I had yeah, because I, I remember somebody in my school had that. I'm like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're uh, it's it's funny they've you know they've reprinted those. Yeah, uh, in a number of sort of like they've used the eagle and like they're like kind of like so there's like the original version there's like modified versions of it but yeah um the opening act by the way was was uh which we talk about was autograph oh, um, really and that okay. was so now autograph was they were they were from la and they okay. um they ended up doing two or three albums for rca okay. and uh you know van halen at the time had this i didn't know it but had, had this policy in place where they never really took anybody out with any good for the exact <laughs> reason the exact reason i mean really the, really the exact reason why was that they wanted people they weren't worried about any band like blowing them off the stage they weren't like oh my gosh if we bring Procus out they're gonna blow us off the stage that wasn't what it was but they didn't want anybody really they didn't want anybody who was going to keep people's attention mm. from buying shirts like this is i this is comes from the drummer from autograph who passed away said this in an interview he said that they had they had just they didn't have a record deal okay they were they were the drummer was friends with david lee roth put this band together and they were like go out and tour you some songs they had demos and so they had some songs and roth and those guys kind of knew some of the guys from la 
So, but they were a band without a record deal. Now imagine it's the biggest tour, right, in Van Halen's history, and they're taking right. out somebody, not someone out on Warner Brothers, like, oh, like, hey, bring out like I don't know, like up and coming rock band from Warner Brothers. Right. You could be like, no, they took out a band without a deal. And <laughs> the drummer from Autograph said later that when Eddie Van Halen called him or they he talked to him again, maybe at rehearsal or something before they went on the road, he was like, you guys are perfect for us. I'm really excited you guys are going to be on the road for us. We needed a t-shirt band. Eddie said <laughs> to the guy and the guy was like, what? What, what do you mean a t-shirt band? Like, I, I'm sure the guy thought like, you're going to put us on a t-shirt. You're like, oh no, no, we need a band. That that no one's going to be into, and it's going to be, everyone's going to go out and buy t shirt before the show, before oh, we come on, one hundred percent. Thank you. So right, well, yes. it, that's true. I mean, because you know, I actually watched autograph. I sat there, and I remember somebody you know talk about say throwing things. It's funny. I have this very very vivid memory of somebody threw a tennis ball and it bounced, and he hit the guitar player's guitar. You know, nothing like I don't remember. I don't remember Mick plunking or anything, but I just remember like bounced off his guitar and like bounced away. And I just was like, oh, this is what people were booing. And I just remember, like, <laughs> you know, it is the first rock, like the first real rock show I'd ever seen, you know, for lack of a better term. And yeah. so that was, yeah, so there you go. Stupid motherfucker hiding out in the dark. Any asshole can throw shit at me where I can't see you, motherfucker. You come on up on stage and let's see what you do. But that's that's crazy though because you would think the people at Warner Brothers, like you said, it was the hottest tour of the summer slash year. Okay, we've got these guys. You know, they'd be perfect for. Nah, no thanks. We'll, we'll grab. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there was like no no conversation about that. I'm sure they already knew. I mean, because Van Halen had been doing. I mean, they had Van Halen had been doing that for for years, or they would just take bands out. That even like they took out. Oh, after the fire, they played some shows. They played some shows in San Francisco. Like you could. Uh, their commissar, Com their commissar, right? So again, like their commissar was a big song, right? But like, think yeah. about it: is the average Van Halen fan going to be into that? No, again, no. I can like I can listen to that and be like, oh, that's kind of a cool, fun, nostalgic song to listen to. But like, they they were out on the diver down tour with them, and you know, they they took out a couple like a couple of other bands that were sort of maybe of a higher a higher level than Autograph, and maybe not as famous as After the Fire. But for the most part, that was the deal. They just took out. You know, the Velcros was another band on the 1984 tour. Ever hear of the Velcros? Nope. That they, yeah. they opened shows. A band called Rail opened shows for them in 1979 or 1980. I think in 1980. Like, nope, never heard of them. Again, re they were like kind of a regional band. Uh, the Fabulous Poodles opened some shows for them in 1979. <laughs> what in the world? So that was like a new wave band. Again, but that was the that was the thinking. Again, they were not worried. They weren't worried that somebody was going to upstage them, but they just they just figured this out early on, Mike. The more shirts can be sold, more shirts can be sold if people are not into the opening act. They're just going to like literally like walk, you know, ah, they spent. I don't really like this band or I'm not into this band. I don't know these this guys. I'm going back out to the waiting line to buy a shirt. That's yeah. where they made them. You know, that's where they made the most of their money. Gotcha. Well, I see that changed because by the time Jackson and I had the chance to see them for the first time. It was the Foreign Lawful Colonel Lawless tour. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And Alice in Chains opens for him, and there were people there to see Alice in Chains who left after they I were think, done. Right, and I 100%. I think that was like, obviously, Sammy had something to do with that, and maybe the brothers sort of, again, I don't know, that was probably from Van Halen management at the time, Noel Monk, and those guys kind of thinking that, you know, Raw thinking that was a good idea, and the brothers didn't, who knows, I, maybe the brothers didn't, didn't care. I'm not saying, and, you know, from what I understand, like, they treated the opening acts well. I mean, they always were like everyone I've ever heard talk about opening for Van Halen. Those guys were like that Eddie was. They was came to the 
dressing room and talk to them. They didn't treat them like shit. It was just a matter of, like, you know, it's like, yeah. yeah, you know, we're giving you a chance, but yeah, you know, we're, we're not, this is the situation. But right, yeah, then then they had like Bachman Turner Overdrive open to, for them in 1986. And then in 88, okay. they had, I, I might be messing this up, like Baby Animals maybe might have opened them for 88 or maybe that was later. So sorry, my Van Halen fan card is going to get suspended because I can't remember the name <laughs> of the band. I'm confusing them in my mind. But yeah, and then like there were, Right, Alice in Chains, and then there was a Brother Kane opened for them when I saw them in '95, and so there were, you know, there was that sort of that policy changed. I think that was, you know, for the better. Obviously, I mean, this is really what you want. You want like, you know, bands that are suitable for that. But that was, you know, it was a different look. All cash business. You guys can figure it out. I mean, it was an all yeah. cash business, and the more T-shirts you sold, that that was all like it's free money. Baby. IRS was not going to be able to audit the T-shirts. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just like that's the reality of it. Was I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but I mean, that was like pure cash right there was no promoters cut we get it yeah we understand that was just straight into the coffer so the more merch they could sell the better but there was yeah i mean playing like you know i don't remember the doors open but then they you know then they also they did the getting ready for the show and whatever they do there they break down the equipment for autograph and i was like you know they didn't have like they had like small they didn't have any lighting or anything there was nothing there was just drums bass guitar and a keyboard so probably like they literally probably could have gotten that shit off the stage in like 20 minutes but they milked it for like 45 and you know sell more t-shirts yeah all right so favorite moment and favorite song oh favorite moment it was probably i mean for sure eruption i mean that was the thing that was kind of like the most yeah. um life-changing for me in terms of that i was a crappy guitar player and i came to kind of like mm -hmm. the best intermediate guitar player of all time i never like i could never like progress it's never really could but like for me seeing that at the time when i was starting to pick up the guitar i was like oh wow you know it was just everything to me what was my favorite song probably play with little guitars which was he played the little, you know, the little Les Paul guitar, and mm -hmm. I have very um, clear memories of him playing that riff, which I thought was so cool and so unique. I, unique. I don't think I'd ever heard, I'm 99% sure I'd not heard Diver Down at that point. I don't think I did, because I think the, uh, I'm trying to remember what the other album I bought before that, I might have been Van Halen 2. I I had Van Halen 2 in maybe 1984 by the time I went to see Van Halen, but okay. um, very, yeah, very much an album I love and a song that was, was just a great a great live song with the harmonies and everything and they they did it great i mean they just did it great that was maybe the best song they did all night Okay. What about the biggest, was there, what was the biggest disappointment in your first big Van Halen show? Anything? I don't think I was disappointed by anything. I mean, I think like. You were stuck with some old things you didn't know, maybe. On. I mean, when the lights came on, I was probably disappointed. I mean, I wasn't, I don't remember being disappointed by anything. And again, I didn't have really much of a measuring stick to go against. But of course, the reality is that after that, it was all like, I saw lots of other good shows and lots of other good bands. But, you know, you kind of saw when like a band really couldn't deliver in an arena. Um, you know, there was one band in particular that I saw, you know, later and you sort of like, man, you know, I was like, they're a big, big, a big band. And you're sort of like, you know, they're not Van Halen. Like you kind of could see they just didn't really have the ability to sort of, again, that sort of like um, ability to own the moment. So yeah, nothing really, nothing really disappointed me. And I mean, I just was, it was, good. it was great. Yeah. I was, I remember, I do remember wishing that I had a ticket for the next night. I mean, but I knew that was like, that was like impossible. That was like a no, you know, that was a no go. Yeah. I'm sure. I, I you know there was no ticket available, but like, I was like, come on. They're playing again. Like I kind of knew, knew they were playing another <laughs> night, but yeah. then they were off to wherever they were up to, like Boston or something. They were off to the next city. Uh, now, obviously, you've seen them again. 
Can you give us an idea of how many times you've seen them? And then where does this rank? Where does that night rank in all the times you've seen them? You know, it's funny. I, I have people who I follow on Twitter or, you know, I've seen Van Halen like dozens and dozens of times. I've probably seen them. I don't even know the count. I mean, like uh, less than 10. I've seen them okay. less than 10. But most every tour? Uh, I, well, I saw them on 5150, Monsters of Rock. I did not see them on OU812. I saw them and I didn't see them on, which I really wish I'd seen them on that and the uh, Foreign Lawful Tour. I saw them on the Balance Tour. And then I didn't see them again until 2000 and, um, 2007. Me too. <laughs> it, you know, it ranks, I mean, it ranks as like, number number one by far. Um, the 5150 shows were fun. They were great. I mean, they were very, very fun to go to. You know, Monsters of Rock was kind of weird because it's in a stadium. And the thing the, the thing was that it was a long-ass day. I mean, and yeah. you know, it was hot. And, you know, you already you see Metallica and, you know, Scorpions. And I got to tell you, it was just... Sort of, I think the crowd was kind of gassed out by the time they came out. They they were good. I mean, it was you know, with Van Halen, it was never bad. It was always a good show. It was like a very sure. you know, like with Van Halen, it was great, right? It's like you're seeing Van Halen, but it was like it really wasn't going to measure up to that that first time. When I saw them on Balance, I saw them in in uh, Memphis at the the um at the Pyramid, and yeah. what was unique about that show, I don't know if it's unique, but what was sort of stood out in my mind about that show was that that was they call it the ambulance tour because Ed and I were both having physical problems. And so Ed played from a stool. He largely, that was September, 1995. And he really? largely played from a stool because he was having hip replacement soon. So his hip was like extremely painful for him. So he, you know, he walked, he would sit up a couple times and solo, but for the most part, he just leaned on a stool and played sitting down and Alex. He had, had that, yeah, he had that big neck, neck thing. Neck That had, looked like, awful. Supposedly, I mean, I, the, the story always was that, it, I, I don't know enough to say it's not true. It always seemed like kind of a weird, like supposedly plaster fell on his head and hurt his neck. Maybe that's what it was. I mean, I don't know. It's like always, it's always hard to tell with sort of like injuries with, with famous people. It's right. always like, they, you know, they fell down the stairs. And it very much could be that. But that was, I always thought that was kind of a strange, like plaster fell from a ceiling and hit him on the head. And, and But either way, he had a neck brace. and uh, That's what he told the old lady. Yeah, I mean, whatever. And again, I don't know. Like, you know <laughs> I swear. Alex, it could be 100% true, but it yeah. seems like something I might say to like, you know, like say to somebody like, you know, like, you know, what, you know, what happened last night? Oh, yeah. You know, whatever. I, you know, I, whatever. You, you bump your head on the door, right? You're like, oh, I just, you know, instead of like being punched in the face, I ran into a door, you know, like that type of thing, right? <laughs> but yeah, they were, you know, they were both kind of limited in what, and they played great, obviously. Great show. But yeah, didn't other, the other shows were not. It just was, I mean, it wasn't, it was almost a different thing. And again, I don't mean that to knock Sammy. It was just the, the energy level with the Sammy shows were great. And the, I, I saw Sammy with Van Halen a lot, you know, and I loved it. I loved it. I saw them twice on that 50 or 50 tour and they were great shows, but it was just sort of a singular thing with Van Halen and rock that first time. And, you know, it was magical it was, first time we were 14. Uh, you can't get that back, right? You can't no. recreate that. Yeah. No, no. And, um, the thing I will say on the 2007 tour, speaking of Roth singing, Roth sang great. And I really think it's a shame that for whatever reason, the band decided not to put a live album out or any sort mm -hmm. of live footage out from the 2007 tour, because I know Ed was having some problems with substances and he was not, you know, it took him a while to kind of get on, right. on the straight and narrow on that tour. And there were some problems there. But when I see, I mean, when I saw him in Kansas city, Roth, like I was actually shocked at how great Roth sang because he's saying, he was singing much better than he had sung like on the Sam and Dave tour. And like, you'd see, you know, whatever, that was kind of the early ages of the internet. And you would see like, I guess, well, yeah, YouTube was up and going, right. It was like, it was like, you'd see footage of him, like performing it, you know, whatever with his solo band. And he was in the gold lemme spandex and everything. And it was just, 
the, the you know the vocals weren't great. I mean, they were just weren't great. Sort of was sort of like, oh, this is where this is heading. But Roth really, to his credit, I really was on it. I mean, it was every like I was shocked at how great it was. And so, um, from that standpoint, that was very memorable about that second in instance of seeing Roth was how you know in, in some ways he like outsh outshined Eddie because when I saw them in Kansas City, Eddie Eddie I'll just say this Eddie flubbed Eddie flubbed little guitars and it yeah. was actually like a clunker and it was like. Did that just really happen? And he ended up, you know, he ended up going to rehab fairly soon after that, like within like, I want to say within a week or two of that, it was, it was, the, the store got stopped, um, maybe longer, but not much longer than that. And, you know, no, I saw that tour, tour, man. And I might've seen it just before that because they came. No, this was October. This was October. Yeah, you probably did. And I remember, cause I used to be like a top 50 reviewer for Ticketmaster. And I remember I gave him three stars instead of five. And I'm like, cool. And the gang, the opening back act were better than Van Halen. They did not print that review, by the way. Um, no, but yeah, trying to sell tickets. Yeah, I know. And, yeah, and it's exactly. kind of a bummer that Mike wasn't in the band because you got to see the original band on 1984. I, you know, I'll go to my grave never, never having that. Right? Yeah, I think I think that was sort of when they came out and did the press conference. I mean, of course, sort of saw the writing on the wall that that wasn't going to happen this time around. You know, I, it's you know, it's sort of. I had always hoped that eventually, like that was going to happen. Like you know, again, I mm -hmm. thought I thought Wolfgang was was thrust into a very challenging situation as the you know, like a young kid. Your dad says you want to join Van Halen, and you're thinking like, yeah, okay, like want to help my dad, and my dad needs me, and right. And so, but I, I guess what I'm saying is like you kind of always hoped that at some point there would be like not that we we're going to kick Wolfgang out, but it basically like they were going to be like, okay, we're going to go out as the original band. And I guess that almost you know, as you guys know, almost happened before Eddie passed, and it mm -hmm. just never. It just never happened. And, you know, kind of looking from the 2007 standpoint, you think like, oh, they'll tour in 2009 and maybe, maybe right. Mike will be back in 2010. And it never, of course, they didn't, I don't think they toured again until 2012, right? They took like five years where they toured again. And then, you know, they only did really the three. Again, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, they did the 07, 08, the 2012 tour, and then they did 2015. And that was the, um, the wrap, if I'm remembering correctly. They only did the three, the three tours with Roth. Um, you know, and so they, it just that never came around to happening. But for me, the the thing was, I never, I had given up any hope of them ever reuniting with Roth because there, you know, there had been here, you know, you guys were around and you know, like obsessed Van Halen fan or even like even like a fan or like a, a, a casual fan. There were numerous rumors like, oh, they're you know they're going to get back with Roth. They're going to, you know, this has been like the time of uh, the MTV reunion, and then there'd be other times. It was, it was right. just always like kind of like the 2004, right before the the, the Sammy reunion, 2004. There was talk that Roth was going to go back, and there was so there was always this sort of like, oh, it's going to happen. It never happened. You're like, okay, it's never going to happen. And then suddenly that was like, oh, it's actually happening. I, I can't believe it. it's happening. For me, once they did that, what was it like 96 or 97 when they did the greatest hits? Right, uh, CD on, yeah, yeah, and then they went on the MTV Awards, and okay, here we go. And then when that didn't happen, yeah, I said, I, I don't think it would ever happen. No, it's, I didn't think so just... either. So I, I was always, you know, I was always of the opinion that it was, it was, it, and I, and I was always of the, is what I'm trying to say. I was always of the opinion too that this thing could blow up at any time. Like I was actually, <laughs> I actually yeah. thought, I thought like not that I wasn't going to go, but I said anybody who's like vacillating about you're a fan and vacillating about going in 2007, you're a fool because odds are. They're going to kick him out of the bank. Exactly. I, mean, I, I was like, thinking, the fact that it lasted all the way to the end is kind of amazing. And, you know, that's maybe that's a whole nother podcast discussion. But like that they, <laughs> like, because I always assumed that it was just a matter of time, but they were like, F Dave, exactly. we're getting Sammy back, right? We're going to get Sammy back. Now and, I remember then, why we hated this 15 years ago, right? Right, right. Or whatever. So, you know, and then it just, you know, then it continued. So I was just sort of like, take it for what it is. And then, you know, we'll, we'll see what ends up happening. But yeah, and then when it kept going, I kept thinking like, oh, maybe they'll do the thing with, with Mike. And just, yeah, never happened. Never happened.
I said it earlier, just so you know that I mean it, Ed. The high points of my life have been spent on stage working with you, you too. So I guess for after-show fun, you weren't pounding beers in the car with no, your mom, but no, did, was, did you go no. home and listen to your headphones or anything like that? even remember i mean i think it was i was like it was a school night oh right i mean it's i Monday, it was a right? school night it was a monday night so i think i just kind of like yeah drove back i mean back in the car my mom my mom probably peppered me with questions and my ears were ringing and yeah so what was I that day know. like the next day when you went to oh school, yeah you wore you were your like, shirt oh, and everything and you're like oh, oh yeah. yeah yeah it was you know it was i was kind of a shy a shy kid you know but there was obviously a lot of buzz one i have one funny kind of story that doesn't relate to the 84 tour but to the eat him and smile tour was that there was a girl I went to high school with who was in my class who sort of like became like this metal queen. Like she was a very good looking girl and she sort of like had like the hair, like that sort mm, of like poison up. hair to be, mm. and like would wear, she would wear like spandex to school. Like it was a whole, like a whole thing. Like she was like, well, like the hot metal girl. And so I remember very vividly, like, and I asked her about it, you know, and she said, yes. And I, I'm sure it was true that she got to go backstage in 86 and like met Dave or whatever. Like, and again, I'm sure there were like dozens of girls who had this, like, and were given passes to go back, which, you know, that was like the ultimate, like, that was the ultimate next day concert story. You're like, you, you, you met David Lee Roth and yeah, whatever. She was like, she was 16, right? She was 17. She was, she was 16 or at most, I think maybe 17, probably 17 at most. I'm guessing she was 16. So whatever it is, I'm sure it was perfectly. Everything was on the up and up. And I don't think anything oh, like I'm weird sure happened. But, uh, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to throw shade at her. Uh, <laughs> but like the fact that she could say that she went backstage at a David Lee Roth concert, like that was the ultimate, like lunch table, like cred, you were like, and I didn't know her super well, but I was just, she was like, yeah, it's just like, I did, <laughs> I did awesome. actually meet Dave brother, you know, so nice. You know, people keep reminding me of this kind of crazy image. People keep invoking this, this wild eyed slack jawed image and everything. And I tell you, I've been seeing the same girl now for maybe two Maybe three weeks, man. Well, before uh, we get you out of here, would you go see a reformed Van Halen in any way? With obviously Wolfie stepping in for his dad. If they do Alex, Mike, and Sammy, and then Wolfie stepping in, which I don't think they would ever do. I don't think Wolfie should do that. But let's say they did. Would you go see that? Okay, so like in an alternate universe, Wolfie, Wolfgang wakes up one day and says, I want to put Van Halen back together, which he said like over and over again, he won't. Okay, so I'll put that out there sort of a preface to this. So it's sort and of I'll like, put it out there. Like, I don't want him to. I don't think strike. he should. Yeah, right. I, I, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Like struck by lightning. But, but sure, if like Wolfgang and Alex announced on some like, you know, alternate universe, they were like, we're, we're going to go out as Van Halen and do something. I'm sure I would go. Yeah. I mean, I think mm -hmm. that's a whole nother conversation about that. And I think the, at the end of the day, for me, it's sort of like the fact that they haven't, meaning the Royal they, meaning Eddie and excuse me, that Alex and Wolfgang have decided to sort of like basically retire it. It's smart. I mean, look, I mean, you know, I'm not throwing shade at any other band for, for doing what, you know, for continuing it on. But I think, I always think it's like so on it, you can't argue against it when when Wolfie says my dad was basically the essence of Van Halen like musically you can't have a Van Halen without Eddie Van Halen I mean it's like you know it'd be like having an Ed, it'd be like having an Elvis show without Elvis right it's like we're gonna do like we're gonna put the Elvis you know the, the taking care of business band back together or whatever but we're not gonna have Elvis you know and it's like okay it's like and so I, I think and I think honestly like whatever arrangement of people you could imagine i mean i think it's just there i think i think alex is I, look i have no inside information but i think by all all alex is done i just think he's like retired yeah. retired right and again like i think that's actually very respectable and admirable to say like done my thing i don't really want to go out and jam with people 
I'm not going to be the guy who shows up. Like, obviously, any band in the universe, like, you know, you could show up and say, I want to play drums tonight. And, uh, and, and like, he didn't Alex stay too long, Cooper. right? He didn't right. stay too long. Well, like, he sucks. No. Yeah. Right. <laughs> or, or even if he was, I mean, even right, even if you're like, yeah, I'm sure he can still play great. I mean, like he could show up like on the on the you know he could show up on the on the uh, he could show up on the uh, Motley Crue Def Leppard show and say I want to play drums, Tommy. And I'm sure Tommy Lee would be like, Fuck he would yeah. jump, yeah, he would jump Fuck out of yeah, his seat, yeah, dude. Fuck yeah. <laughs> you know, like again, like like any band on the planet would let him. Again, I'm just making that up as an like obviously Foo Fighters. He, he can come for a couple sure, songs, sure, right? right. Yeah. Again, like it's not it's not in the car. He doesn't want to do it. I mean, I think. You know, barring any like amazing change of heart, I think by all everything we can see, like he's not into that. He just never played with anyone but his brother. Doesn't want to do that, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, so it's good. I mean, I think it's good insofar like Zeppelin, like they ended it. I think that's the other thing too to think about. It's like I have no idea what Alex is thinking about this. None, no idea. But I would say that he is a massive Led Zeppelin fan, and when Bonham died, they put it to bed. Again, they like did like you know they did a couple of reunion things they did with with sure. Jason and stuff like that it was a little you know a little different you know maybe that it was the Live Aid thing and it was like this obviously there's like they did it for the at that point in the eighties they did for Atlantic Records in eighty eight and right in the charity they did thing, right? nineteen ninety yeah right it's like once a decade they do it and like again maybe you know who knows I mean like maybe five six years ago from now maybe there's like some charity thing and Alex and Wolfie want to go up there and play a couple of Van Halen songs together and you know whatever like that would be that would be amazing but I think. I think the basic essence was it, it was like when Led Zeppelin ended, it ended, right? They didn't sort of like, they didn't sort of like keep trying to trot out like a guy to replace Bonham. They were like, oh, That's we'll right. get, you know. Now, having said that, I have seen Wolfie. I mean, I saw him play and I'm sure you did too. Mm-hmm. He, played him, yeah. Pan- he, well, he played Panama at the Taylor Hawkins uh, tribute deal. So yeah. it's not that he can't play it. He is absolutely uh, 100% capable yeah. of stepping up to do it. So, But yeah, kudos to him for not trying to, just trying to di- not distance himself, but he's like, I've got my own thing. I'm doing my own thing. Yeah. Let's let's let Van Halen, like you said, like, like Led Zeppelin, just let it let it be what it was and not try and beat it to death. Yeah. I think, I think it's, I, I think it's to have it be your dad and to be like, I'm going to try to step in for him would feel, mm. I don't know, maybe not for everybody, but I think I could understand why that would be feel, feel wrong. Right. Right. Yeah. Especially when you know, like your dad would not be a, like from everything I've heard Wolfie say, like he, I believe he said in so many words, like my dad would be pissed off if he was yeah. like, like what the hell are you doing? Yeah, playing my music, play yeah. your own music. Don't make your own stuff. Yeah. Well, he, yeah he said, yeah, I think, I think I don't know where it was. It might've been on Stern where he was like, yeah, he would have said, Ed would have said, don't mess around with my old shit. Go play your new shit. Right. Right. And uh, the fact that his father heard all the music and, you know, there's some very poignant stories about his father being, you know, the last years of his life and sort of being around 5150 and coming up and listening to the music. Obviously he was around for the birth of all like, you know, I think most of the two albums, when I was saying that will be, I remember Wolf, he said that he's had a lot of the songs ended up in the first two records were, were done before his father passed or at least demoed. You know, and the fact that his father was so enthusiastic about the music, I mean, yeah, and like, and again, like, it's just, it's just a, you know, it just becomes, you just become a, a nostalgia act, right? You, you can't, yeah. You what, are you going to write new Van Halen music? Well, no one's going to, I don't mean to say that's an offensive way to Wolfie, but like, if Wolfie wrote a new Van Halen song, it's not going to replace Unchained, right? You know what I mean? Like, that's not even right. like, like with your own his own music, you'd be like excited. It's oh, it's mammoth, and I, I love listening to the music, and you go to see them live, and they're amazing live, and you're like, it's cool, but like, sort of be like, oh here's Van Halen and we're going to like put out songs as Van Halen. It just would feel like, you know, it would just feel like you're trying to recreate something that, yeah. Yeah. Again, it's not even about, yeah, I think cashing in is interesting too, but I think it's like, 
it's not even about the money, right? Because I don't think that would be, I would doubt that would be forefront in his mind, but it's just a matter of like trying to like, what are you trying to, you're trying to basically chase something that can't be recreated. That's the well, reality. See, even like Eddie, I think, fell into that. Even he didn't try, I mean, from 1995 to the day he died, right. he wasn't exactly prolific, man. I mean, you know, they made the Gary Cherone album, Ben Halen 3, right. they had a few new songs on the two greatest hits, and then they had a different kind of truth, which is where they reworked some songs that have been lying around for decades, right? Right. So he he didn't do a whole lot. And so even he didn't want to compete with his past, but that's uh, probably that's the, my biggest right. beef with them, to be honest. Well, well, that's always the that's you know, that's the kind of the the blessing and the curse is that you have a catalog like that. Mm-hmm. You know, people really want to hear those songs. And then when you reach this different stage in your life, if you know, 25, 30 years after your your peak fame, your peak songwriting successes, you know, the the implication is it's you know, it's very it's very difficult for a mid-career artist just to sort of over surpass, you know, again, that level of success. You know, we also we have, there's there are probably examples we can figure out if we talked about about artists who were sort of like hit their their stride a little bit later, like their seventh or eighth album, and they sort of mm-hmm. they, they sort of became they kind of you know became more successful. But you know, it's like whatever Jimmy Page did. I mean, I had the Outrider album, I had the Firm albums, like nothing compared to Led Zeppelin. I'm sorry, I know. It just did. Yeah. It wasn't even close. Right, he knows so that's. It too. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, it's, you know, and, and to Ed's credit, like the stuff he did on, on balance is great. And, you know, there's, there's, there's stuff that they did on the um, different kind of truth album that, that I think, I think a lot of the different kind of truth album really will, will, will hold up. But again, it's like they were aware that I think those guys were aware that trying to sort of go like, oh, we're going to put out an album, especially in the economics and music industry today, just didn't make sense to them. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm right. like, Look, I think the the good news is that we got that we did get that one. I think it would have been very disappointing if we had not gotten a record with Roth and Van Halen post reading. I think that would have been a huge disappointment. And kudos to Wolfie for really pushing that over the finish line. From what I understand, that was a very difficult process, and there was a lot of just no doubt. I mean, just whatever. There was just a whole bunch of stuff that took in. You know, he was really uh, instrumental in kind of keeping them focused on getting that done, and so. Yeah, it's, it's uh, and of course, what's very strange is that it's not on iTunes and not on Spotify for some reason because of the licensing from Interscope, I guess. But um, no, that album has some very enjoyable moments on it. And uh, it was really great to hear Ed and Wolf and just the whole, like, just to have like a Van Halen album again. Mm-hmm. You know, the one, they were one and done with that. And they did the live album, which like, to me was just whatever it is, it is. But that was just, you know, in terms of the, the um, studio album, they were one and done with the reunion. Well, Greg, That's, this has been a lot of fun. Can you tell our listeners like where to find you on social media, sure. how to get your books? Sure. Yeah, I'm pretty active on Twitter. It's um, at G-R-E-G-R-E-N-O-F-F, my first name, my last name. On Twitter, you know, my books are available, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all those types of good places. I sell autographed copies if you want me to sign your book through, um, there's a link on my Twitter at templemanbook.com, and uh, you can go and you can uh, order a signed copy from me. But for the most part, yeah, I'm just really appreciative that people still care to, you know, uh, read my books or, or are interested in talking about this stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I appreciate it. That's really, Twitter's really the best way to get a hold of me. I was just going to say, you were talking about the uh, the reunion with Roth and Wolfie mm-hmm. was saying, apparently that he was going through a set list, putting a set list together in his head and he's writing it all out. And there was a, there was a Sammy song. And Dave is, oh, that's is, a funny story. Yeah, what is this? Uh, what? Nothing. <laughs> that's a yeah. That's a cla- that's a classic. So I've forgotten that story. That's a great story. Yeah, he talked about that. I think again, I don't remember what it was. It was like it was like let's just matter. It was like pound cake or something like that. Yeah, which wasn't one of his, and it was like oh no, what that? No, 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 no. Don't worry about that. 
Oops. Yeah, yeah, I think that's like that was probably like a very awkward moment. I think that was a very awkward five to ten seconds in Wolfie's life where he was just like when he when he sort of realized what he did, it was like when Ross was like, I, I don't know that song. It's like, oh, that on? And he was like, Oh, oh sorry, let's continue. Um, yeah, I mean all all credit to Wolfie for putting that thing together. I mean, I think it's it's pretty much the historical record shows that if he had not pushed for that, that never would have happened that reading with Ross. Never never would have had at least not in 2007 2008 maybe like but where things were going it was not looking like it was ever going to happen it, it really so, is it really is heartbreaking when well i mean the, the fact that that ed passed but then you learn the whole story of you know sammy coming out and saying yeah we we had been talking we did get back together and he was on the cusp of reaching out to to michael anthony it's like oh. right yeah i think that's uh, really uh i think uh, yeah after ed passed it's, it's sort of clear that he was sicker than people knew or at least had you know the cancer he had periods of remission, but it never really, like he never really had long stretches where there was no, you didn't have to deal with something with the cancers. And so that's really, right. yeah, it's, yeah, it was a shocking, definitely a very, very shocking day. You know, everyone knew, I think, I shouldn't say everybody, but I think it was, I think it was pretty clear at that point because his, because he had been sort of absent from, like you weren't seeing pictures of him and there was always right. pictures that would be posted of Ed were always like from official channels that were always like, you know, like, oh, that's from three years ago. Like whatever was like, the haircut, like whatever you can sort of see, like it was like that was taken at a certain time and you sort mm -hmm. of recognized it. And then they sort of like gave you, you know, people would pay attention to that. You were sort of like, oh, it doesn't give me a good, a good yeah. vibe about what's going on. And then of course he, right. yeah, he announced that he passed away. So that, never that be was, another. That was no, that's for sure. Changed the world, changed our lives almost three years ago because uh, that was our first ever episode was the tribute to wow. Eddie Van Halen yeah. and what, a, like a, 150 a in now at this point. <laughs> A good reason to launch a podcast. I mean, yeah, it was, you know, he was somebody who changed the game in so many ways. And it's, you know, I was, I thought that there would be a, I'll, I'll, I'll share my, I can't do it, but documentary idea. Like, you know, it would be somebody just to hear like the, 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 you hear so many musicians talk about their meeting Eddie Van Halen, like, you know, Nuno Betancourt and all like, there's all these Dweezil Dapple, all these guys talking about and men and women who talk about like when they met Eddie, like the meeting mm -hmm. with Eddie and like just, again like encountering him and how, what an inspiration that was for them like just sort of like to have him out there in the world making music and then have that moment like oh we you know we jammed or we like he gave me a guitar or something like that like the yeah. that is like for those people you when you hear them talk about it, it was like really full fuel for them it really made them more impassioned about music and stuff like that so um just a yeah i mean it's just a loss that we can't even calculate so yeah that's right well greg your knowledge and passion of van halen is amazing and we really appreciate you coming <laughs> on and sharing remind me this here today <laughs> remind me to be out well yeah, appreciate it. Remind me next time we talk. I'll I'll uh, try to get stick more to the questions, but I appreciate it very much. It was fun. <laughs> the questions don't matter. You know what matters is you saw Van Halen as a fourteen year old. I did. And it turned you on and it changed your life, and that's awesome. I did. I did. Here I am. Yeah, exactly. Look how, well, look how my mom said, "Look how well you turned out." Like you know, whatever bad parent, whatever bad parenting thing she did, she's always like, "Look how well you turned out." Like exactly, mom. Don't take drugs. You did that one right for sure. Definitely, man. Definitely. No, thanks a lot, man. And good luck okay, with the book, it. you know. And thank you. Keep keep rock alive, man. Do your okay, part. Okay, you too. Awesome. You guys appreciate it. Thanks. Right. Thanks, thanks man. Take care. We got discovered. The president of uh, Warner Brothers came down and saw us playing in a bar one night. We were playing for free, and he came with our producer Ted Templeman, who uh, who else does he produce? Oh, a variety uh, of Doobie artists. Yeah. Doobie Brothers, Little Feet, right. You think it's hard to get a word in edgewise with me talking, Jackson? <laughs>
Well, and you know, he makes his living doing this, you know, writing, but I mean, this, this is his band too. So, that's right. and, and just looking at this, this, uh, set list, like I, you couldn't be, especially if that was your first show, you couldn't be like, well, I wish they really would have played something off Van Halen too. No, you walked out of there, your head exploding. And I think he downplayed that a little bit. There's no way you didn't go to high school the next day. They'll walk in and they're like the king of the castle. Exactly. Come yeah. on now with the shirt on. Like, yeah, you know where I was last night, suckers. I know. And we got to, we've got to say the set list, to, you know, for everybody. It was April 2nd at, at the, at e- in East Rutherford. Start with Unchained. Oh my God. Can you imagine mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you come out to that? My God. Then straight into hot for teacher. Well, that's kind of even taking it up a notch as far as speed goes. Then Alex does his drum solo, On Fire, Running with the Devil, Little Guitars and Cathedral. So it's almost like Eddie has a couple of solos, almost. Yeah. Because um, then they do House of Pain, Mikey's bass solo, Jamie's crying, I'll wait, everybody wants some. By the way, didn't he marry a girl named Jamie after he divorced Valerie? I believe he did, yes. So that's kind of bizarre. Um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, it'd be like Greg Allman marrying some girl named Melissa, you know, or whatever. <laughs> but anyway, everybody wants some Girl Gone Bad, which is a heavy song. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1984, the keyboards, they can go right into the next song, Jump, nice. Then they do guitar solo. I, you mentioned there was Eruption, a little bit of Mean Street in there. And then Oh Pretty Woman, Panama, You Really Got Me, and Ain't Talking About Love. You go, oh my God, Jump, Eddie's guitar solo, Pretty Woman, Panama, You Really Got Me, Ain't Talking About Love. My head would have exploded. Yeah. And in looking through this set list, they only did not play two songs off of that, off 1984, Top Jimmy and Drop Dead Legs, which mm-hmm. I like both of those songs. But I mean, they damn near played the entire album. So even if you weren't a huge, if you were a huge 1984 fan, this was great. It wasn't one of those where they played two and then they went into the back catalog. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas, you know, like when we saw them in the same era, Although we ended up on the live album, I'm pretty sure. They didn't play Ain't Talking About Love for us. I no. Think they, they didn't, you really got me. That's cool and all. But I don't think Sammy, I mean, they did jump, you know, uh, they did Panama. You kind of had to. I don't think Sammy liked doing jump. I think it took him a while before he did jump. So that was kind of a thing there. But look, it's very different from what we saw. And gosh, it just makes you wish you were just that little bit older. You know? <laughs> And now it makes me want to go and watch that documentary. I think it's on Netflix about the kid who won that that uh, Lost Weekend deal. Oh, really? Yeah, and I'm going to see that. Yeah, because apparently he was saying like, you know, yeah, he won it from MTV, but there was zero supervision. Like he got dropped off and they just said, good luck. And all of a sudden he's backstage doing all kinds of things with the band. And yeah, he's like, I could have I could have just been dead. And yeah. no one even would have noticed. <laughs> So cool of Greg Brenoff to join us to talk Van Halen on the second episode of First Concert Memories. And gosh, you know, the first one we had with Tom and Zeus was great, but they're our age, you know, and we saw what Zeus's first one. We could have maybe seen Tom's first one. Ours was in between the two, but we were not quite old enough to see 1984. 
gosh, what amazing night it would have been to see them on that tour. And obviously it changed Greg's life. I mean, he's literally grown up to write the book, write a couple of books now about Van Halen and Ted Templeman. And you can purchase those Amazon, you know, wherever you get your books, but definitely go to his Twitter account at Greg Renoff if you want an autographed copy super guy, and we really appreciate his insights. It was a fun conversation. And while it's only our second episode of First Concert Memories, it is the fifth Van Halen episode we've ever done on Ugly American Werewolf in the Universe. Our very first was a tribute to Eddie, but we've also done album reviews of the first album, Diver Down and OU812, so you might want to go back out and check those out. Had a lot of fun doing those. And all you Van Halen collectors should head over to our sponsor, RareVinyl.com. Use code UGLY and save 10% off anything you buy there. It's a one-time code. So don't just buy one $5 Van Halen album. Go find a rare Japanese import. Go find a picture disc. Go find a bunch of stuff and save yourself a big 10% using the code UGLY at RareVinyl.com. This is a monthly show, so if you want to make sure you don't miss the next one, go ahead and subscribe to The Ugly American Werewolf in London wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to download those. And if you're thinking about it, folks, hey, give us a positive review. It just helps us find more rock fans like you and helps us grow the show. Thank you, as always, to Pantheon Pods. Check out Pantheon Pods at Pantheon Pods on socials, pantheonpodcast.com on the web. And keep going to live music, folks. It's the only thing that's going to keep rock alive. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.